0: Uh, we're continuing our sermon series on foundations of our faith. How many of you have ever done bricklaying or cement work? Have any of you? I see a few hands. Nastiest job I think I've ever done. All that the lime and stuff from the cement all over you every, every day. But, uh, you know, the foundations are so important, and that's what we're looking at in the sermon series of how did God get things started with His people? How did He reveal Himself From the start with Abraham and his son Isaac, and his son Jacob and so on, what were the key elements that he's going to put in place for the rest of all eternity based on the relationship with these guys, the patriarchs of our faith? So today's message we're gonna continue in the series. As I say, I'm doing a slow walk through Genesis, beginning in chapter 12. And uh, we're not getting that far past where we were last week, only about seven more verses in the chapter. But again, we're looking at the relationship and the foundations that that God had set with his his people, particularly Abram. So as I start into this message, let me just uh, pray that God would show us clearly uh, what he wants us to know. Thank you, God, for how you put this together today, how we've been able to walk into your presence in our worship time how we have uh, given back to you through our offerings and uh, through many people that are serving even today with their gifts and talents, with children's ministry and nursery and sound and tech and all of this. We put this together for you, that we can honor you and praise you and worship you. So now, Father, we want to listen to you. May your word speak to us, to our heart, to our mind, to our soul, as we look to see the lessons we need to learn for daily life. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. So read uh, with me, and I would encourage you actually to bring your Bibles each week. Uh, I've got a lot of ground to cover, but I'd love it if you had your Bible that you could be circling and underlining and writing a little notes in the the margins as well each week, just as a reminder. So Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, but the screen will show you starting at verse 5. Just as a reminder... God came to Abram and he said this, you are to leave your land, your relatives, your father's house, go to a land that I'm going to show you. I'll make a great nation of your descendants. I'll bless you. I'll make your reputation great so that you will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you, but I'll curse the one who curses you. And through you, all the people on the earth will be blessed. So Abram left there as the Lord had directed him, and Lot, his nephew, accompanied him and Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. So Abram took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions he had accumulated, and the servants he had acquired while living in Haran. Then they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they arrived in the land of Canaan, Abram traveled through the land to the place called Shechem, as far as the Oak of Morah. Sounds like Middle Earth. No, it's not. <coughs> At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I'll give this land to your descendants. So Abram built an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. And from there, Abram traveled on to the hill country east of Bethel and set up his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called, the name, uh, called on the name of the Lord. Uh, just so you know, verse 8 is the first time anybody called on the name of the Lord. Abram was beginning to have this relationship with God, and this is why God, in the end, calls him his friend. This was a relationship that they had established. It's not a religion at this point. There was no religious activity, no rituals, there was no baptisms and Lord's suppers and all of these things going on at this time. This was just a friend talking to a friend, kind of setting the stage for how God wanted to relate to his people. The last time we left Abram with his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot, uh, they were near the Turkish border. Let's see if we have the map. Uh, see in the north uh, near Charan uh, or Heran, uh, that's right where Turkey is today. He was left there. His father had just passed away. Uh, he had left the, uh, the thriving metropolis of Ur and the fertile crescent of Mesopotamia, and he, he was headed towards Canaan. And We don't really know why his dad decided to leave Ur and go towards Canaan. But I kind of, I don't know. Any of you kind of needed a push from your parents at any time? Just, come on, you can do it. Get that job. Get your own place. You know, hurry. Get your own, you know, get on with life. Sometimes you just need your parents to give you a bit of a push. Give you the encouragement. You know, we'll, we'll help you out if you need, but... And I kind of think maybe God was working in his dad's life, helped him to get out of the Mesopotamian region, went on the way, it says, to Canaan, and then he passed away. So last week we mentioned that sometimes God takes away our securities. We're kind of left on our own. We don't have mom and dad. We don't have the home country. We don't have the relatives. We're just us and God in a very vulnerable place, and that's where... That's where we find Abram. So he's now heading south. He's heading this road all the way, you can see in the map, to Hebron and Beersheba. He's going to head to Shechem and then to Bethel. You can't see it on this map, but just to the right of Bethel or or east is where the town of Ai, Ai, is located. Nobody really knows. Archaeologically, they can find Bethel, they can find Shechem, there's lots of ruins. But if you know your Bible history... Joshua eventually comes through and destroys the town of Ai because they were so obstinate. There's battles going on. But it said when Joshua was done with Ai, there was no town left. It was just a heap of rubble. And that's why there's no more archaeological. They guess where it might be, but they don't know for sure. So in our story today, the account of Abraham, we're going to end up between Bethel and Ai where he's pitching his tent. So the initial covenant that God made with Abram in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, was the foundation of God's relationship with Abram. And in the years to come, God is actually going to repeat the same covenant six times. That was six times. And uh, I don't know if because Abram forgot or maybe had a bad memory or maybe it was just that he needed to be reminded that God was a part of this, that God was with him, that God is not finished with him. That God is going to complete what he started. Even though it's taking a long time, even though it's not going according to Abram's plan, God is still in control. It says in verse 4, so Abram left there as the Lord directed, and Lot accompanied him. He was 75 years old when he left. In our relationship with God, obedience is really the key. John 15, 14 says, you are my friends. You know what it rest says? If you do what I say. Jesus is saying, you're my friends when you demonstrate that you you will follow my commands. There's others such as Peter, James, and John in the New Testament who when they were asked to follow, they just got up and they left everything. They left their father's boat, the fishing nets, and they followed Jesus. It's similar. You see the pattern where Christ, God, the Spirit, calls we just follow. We have to obey. If we want to live in the in the realm of God's authority over our life and get his blessings and his protection, we follow when he calls. Verse 5 informs us that God had already begun to bless Abram. He was uh, with servants and wealth, and so when he arrived in the area of Canaan, and I'll just describe it to you and see if I can look. All the way from Carchemish at the top, all the way down to the the river, this is the whole area of Canaan uh, that we'll be looking at. Uh, It was also called, um, uh, some other names, let's see, Phoenicia uh, was one of the names, uh, Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, they're all kind of in this area today of what we call Canaan. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim is uh, the two mountains, we have another slide, where the town of Shechem sits right in the entrance between these two mountains. This is a fairly current picture of Gerizim and Ebal in the the Palestine area. And uh, that is the city of Shechem. This is where initially uh, Abram came. It didn't look like that way back uh, 4,000 years, but this is exactly the same place. In fact, this mountain, that valley in between the two mountains, was where the 12 tribes of Israel would gather on those two hills to recite God's laws given to Moses. That's where Abram's grandson Jacob would live with his family. Uh, it's also where Joshua would give his last address to the people, challenging them to be true to God. It's where he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's where all of this happened, right there in this valley, in that, that area. And then verse 6 tells us very simply that the Canaanites were in this land. So Canaan was divided into a lot of different city-states. The Canaanites worshipped many different gods, but primarily Baal, uh, the storm god, Asherah, a fertility goddess, and the worst of them was Molech. And over and over, the Israelites were condemned for sacrificing their children to this god Molech, the most evil of the three. So Baalism was an ancient form of secular humanism that catered to the carnal desires of mankind. The Baal and his female consort, Asherah, they represented fertility and prosperity. So historically, um, because of the Canaanites in this land, they kept enticing God's people away to worship their gods, the, the, the pagan gods. Every time they turned their back on God, the true God, and followed the false gods, uh, we see record of their harvests failed. They were oppressed. They had to pay tribute to more powerful tribes. They were powerless to defend themselves, but the moment they repented and they, they uh, turned back to worshiping the one true God, that's when their crops flourished. The power and defenses returned and God protected them. It was a constant, constant cycle of walking from God to other gods and then repenting and turning back to the one true God for a while, and then, then they just trickled back to worshiping the pagan gods again. Do you remember the old story of Pinocchio? Any of you here watch that cartoon? I remember being terrified by that show. <laughs> well, there's one particular scene where Pinocchio, the puppet, who wants to become a boy, he was enticed to go to Pleasure Island. Do you remember? that's was the scary part. Because as the boys went to pleasure, island, it was whatever you wanted—you could smash windows, you could smash mirrors, you could drink, you could play pool, you could do all the things that you weren't allowed to do. Just do whatever you want; no consequences. They thought, until all of a sudden, they began to turn into donkeys, who were going to be sold to the salt mines. And Pinocchio got the two ears and the tail, and go like, "What's going on?" And he had get out of there fast. But the, the taskmaster, the last words he says to all these boys that were finally caught, he says this. You boys have had your fun. Now, now pay for it. And that's kind of what happened as the Baal worship, the astra poles that were on the high places that God's people kept chasing after and seeking after the pleasure and greed uh, There are consequences, often. So today, uh, the culture and the priority of places like Hollywood and Wall Street are prime examples of secular humanism. People love to push the bounds of decency. They want to get as much for themselves as they can. It's all about greed and pleasure. These both come at a cost, not only to the victims, but to one's own soul. Greed and pleasure lead to brokenness, and disease, and despair, and disappointment, and bondage. So the religious practices in Canaan, the Canaanites were in the land, it says... And eventually God would tell the people when they came out of Egyptian slavery and they came to the promised land, it says, you gotta, you got to push these people out. You can't let them stay. You can't let this influence and these enticements and all this temptation remain in the land because it's going be um, to be a hook that's going to drag you into bad places. Genesis 12, verse 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I'll give you all this land to your descendants. So Abraham built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, Abram traveled onto the hill country east of Bethel. And he set up his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. So this, this town of Bethel, I think we have some pictures of the ruins of currently of, of, of Bethel, not much left. But that was the city of God. This is where a lot of important things happened historically with God's people. People would come back to this place, Bethel, Uh, to seek a word from God, whether to go into battle or not. Um, Bethel Bethel is located about 12 miles north of Jerusalem, and and it pops up all throughout the Old Testament. It's where Abraham's grandson, uh, Jacob, flees from his brother, and he falls asleep. He had this dream about a a, a ladder going up to heaven where angels are coming, and it's where his name was changed from Jacob to Israel. It's where Joshua sent men when he captured the town of Ai and where God's people would seek counsel before going into battle. This name Bethel means a city of God. It's where Aaron's grandson Phinehas was tasked with keeping the Ark of the Covenant safe before it was captured. Prophet Samuel and Elijah and Elisha all traveled to or through this town, which eventually became known as two of the main centers for worship of God in the Old Testament. Time and time again, Abraham uh, d- demonstrated wisdom uh, in not living in the cities, but he, he, st- he stayed uh, outside of the cities and planted himself in between the city of God, Bethel, and Ai, which was a, a pagan place. I would later prove to be trouble for Joshua and his army. It was there where Joshua uh, was forced... Uh, His army uh, failed to take the city, lost 36 lives because of the sin of Achan, if you remember the the account in the scriptures. So you've got these two towns kind of battling out. One represents uh, debauchery and evil and destruction and defeat, and the other one where God is there. Uh, And so it says that Abram built another temple there in Bethel where he was staying as a reminder of what God was going to do through him. When I looked at this story, I realized that we, we are positioned always as Christians in between, in between two places, so to speak, in between the kingdom of God and the world around us. One representing what God has to offer, the other one representing what the world has to offer. And every day we venture into the world, it's our environment physically, but it cannot be our home spiritually. We cannot let it corrupt our attitudes and thinking and values. Philippians 3.20 reminds us that we are citizen, our, our true citizenship is in heaven, which means we don't belong on this earth. We have a place that's prepared for us. We're going to. We're traveling through this world. Too many people like to just plant here in this world and not really invest in kingdom things. We should never really feel truly comfortable here because the culture and thinking of the world is shaped by our spiritual adversary, Satan, the god of this world, the ruler of this world. His influence encompasses all of the world philosophies, the education, commerce, and all other religions of the world. They are all under Satan's influences. Anything that's not of Bethel or not a part of God's kingdom is a part of his adversary's kingdom. If you don't have God at the center, then you're totally influenced by what's around you. It doesn't mean that Satan rules the world completely because God is still sovereign and he permits Satan certain freedoms of this world and for just a period of time. But 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, all unbelievers, those that don't have God in their life, are influenced by Satan's agenda. It says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the adversary, Satan's schemes include promoting false philosophies in this world, philosophies that blind the unbeliever to the truth of the gospel. And his philosophies are the fortresses in which people are imprisoned. And Christ is the only one that can set them free with his truth. So when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. When we draw near to the world, we disconnect ourselves from the power and protection of God. Being a friend of the world means being an enemy of God, according to James 4.4. So, just a few things, I've got five points here that we need to watch out for in our own, in our own mind, in our own thinking, in our own attitudes and worldview, because they, they're constantly enticing us and influencing us from the world's perspective. The first one is, is narcissism. The world is here to serve me, says the narcissist. All about self-fulfillment, exaggerated self-importance, the demand for recognition and admiration. They ask the question often, what's in it for me? What will I get out of it? Is this fun and will I like it? It's not about serving others. Philippians 2.3 says, do not act out, out of selfish ambition or conceit, but with humility, think of others as being better than yourself. There's a growing sense of entitlement today, fed largely by the media in general, but reality TV, TikTok, so much focused on self and promoting and marketing self Focus on beauty, fit bodies, all the things that would, enhance. And it's so fake and destructive and unrealistic. But people are, are trapped by that, seeking the perfect look. I, I was uh, at the airport that, uh, around Christmas time, and uh, you know that fancy shopping area by YVR, all those high-end stores? Well, they had tons of sales, like 60% off. So i dropping my son off at the, uh, at the airport to go back to Saskatoon, and my wife and I said, well, let's just go have a look to see if we find a deal. And while we we're there, they had this some big, massive uh, metal uh, monument thing, uh, artistic thing in the middle of one of the courtyards, and I saw this uh, skinny, skinny woman <laughs> with really tight, I think it was leather, pants and jackets and stuff, and she was doing a a, a self kind of a photo shoot the whole time, and she had the look down perfectly, and her husband was, you know, like, doing this and doing this and and doing this, And, and I thought, wow, like, where is that going? Where are you posting all that stuff? Is that really what life's all about, is getting the perfect shot? The second one is materialism, the need for more stuff, finding satisfaction in things. Latest fashion, newer model, bigger version, more toys, bigger, better stuff. and materialism, our self-esteem gets tied to what we own. It's a constant enticement. Okay, I bought some nice basketball shoes when I was there, I admit it. they was like $50 off. There's, they're Steph Curry shoes. You know? Hedonism is another one. Hedonism says, I shouldn't be not denied any pleasure. Whatever I want, polyamorous, uh, have an affair, uh, sleep around, whatever you want, whatever you want to buy, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to try, doesn't matter. It's all there for you. Food, drink, sex, aesthetics, physical appetites, this physical life is to be enjoyed to the max, they say. The deception does not take into account how God designed us emotionally and spiritually. They don't realize that damaging their very soul when they're participating in so much debauchery and uh, leads to addictions. Consequences of the pursuit of pleasure without boundaries. We are more than a bundle of physical appetites and desires. We have a soul that's designed to live forever and every time we feed the body appetites, it harms the soul. The other one is naturalism or scientism. They say, I won't believe what I can't explain or the theory that nothing exists beyond the natural world of scientific laws. Um, How can I believe in something that cannot be proven? What you see is what you get. Live it up while you can. I just know that God doesn't have to be proven empirically. The metaphysical cannot be proven by the scientific method. The evidence for God is everywhere if you want to open your eyes. So I'm all for education, scientific discoveries, exploration, but when your starting place does not include God your ending place will be destruction. God invented thought. He invented science and medicine and mathematics and astronomy. He's in it all, but the world removes all hints of God. They don't want there to be a creator. They want there to be an explanation not faith. They don't want to believe in Someone they would have to submit to. The last one is humanism. Man is the top of the order, not God. We choose our own destiny. We make the best life we can. There's nothing else. Humanism is a man centered religion that places more importance on a person's rational thought than on God's truth. It puts people as their own God. We are in charge, we are in control of our own destiny. Seize the day. But at some point, you have to choose. Choose to trust and let his truth be your beginning point. Trying to live in both worlds, a foot in both worlds, it doesn't work. One will destroy the other. If you choose a world, you will not have access to the power and wisdom of God. If you're a friend of the world, do not expect to have power to overcome temptations in your life. Don't have... You won't have God's uh, guidance and wisdom and leadership if you're always being a friend of the world. Do not expect to receive the Spirit's guidance in your decisions. And you're going to feel far from God. You're going to feel like God doesn't answer my prayer. I read the Bible and nothing happens. I sing songs and it just seems empty. Well, I think you're in the wrong world. I think you've moved too far away from what God uh, intended for you to be. You've got to get back to your Bethel and away from I. Verse 8, it says that Abraham had built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. He takes time to construct a second altar. Uh, this altar at Bethel, the second one, where it's, it's going to be where he returns back to after Egypt. It was closer to Egypt. He's, we're going to look next week at, at Abraham taking this detour to Egypt, messing up trying to solve problems on his own without God, and he's going to come, have to come all the way back to this altar at Bethel and say, God, I messed up. I need you again in my life. He calls on the name of the Lord. He addresses God by his proper name, Yahweh, here for the first time. And he brought, brings his whole household, and this was his act of worship, his response to God's act of friendship. Building an altar is, is, is having a, 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 a static place, a, a fixed point, that centers our hearts and minds on God. It's a place where we can return to again and again, seeking the heart and mind of the Lord, renewing our friendship with God. Otherwise, we we get caught up in the current of of I, of the world. You you either have to fight the current or it's going to take you away. But the altar is your stability. It's your foundation. It's what you keep coming back to, the promises of God, the protection of God, the wisdom of God. A couple of foundational truths uh, to end this message with. One is we have to make a conscious choice to serve God and resist the world every single day. It's an act of the will. When you get up out of bed, you know you're going to be tempted. You know you're going to be pushed to react like the world. You know you're going to be tempted to do things that are going to compromise your faith. It's a conscious choice to serve, to trust the Lord, to believe He is the way, the truth, and the life. Above him, there is no other. He's the one that we will stand before when we pass through this life. Not Oprah, not Nietzsche or Darwin or Stephen Hawking or Richard Dawkins. All of these pretenders who said there is no God or God is dead will be proven as a fraud and a liar. The second thing is we need to make our friendship with God an exclusive priority. You know, you got a best friend with God. Don't let someone replace that. Don't let someone hone in and take over develop that relationship with God as a friend. The Bible says we're either his friend or we're his foe. There's no neutral ground in this battle for the soul of man. There's no fence setting. Looking at Abraham and even in the New Testament characters, the people that we we study in the Bible, we realize that even today we're a post-Christian society. We're no longer in the majority as Christians. We no longer enjoy the the blessings of the state. Uh, I was looking at uh, a a YouTube video on the life of Billy Graham last night. And I think it says about seven, someone correct me, seven presidents called him to their office to ask his advice and to have prayer. Seven presidents (laughs) leading a nation over his 70 years of, of ministry. He was in the highest office in the land. You know, that just doesn't happen anymore. I don't know of any prime minister that's calling on spiritual advisors to come in and pray for them in our country. We're post-Christian society. Just like Abram, he was introducing God for the first time. Nobody knew Yahweh. He was, Abram was the guy to say, yeah, I, I serve a different God, a new God, one who's more powerful. He's the creator of all. All your gods are petty gods compared to mine. Even in the New Testament, they were serving Jesus Christ. Who's Jesus Christ? Never heard of him. Well, you're going to hear from him. You know, they have, they're on the edge of annihilation all the time. Uh, annihilation on one hand and blessing on the other. They're, they're in two worlds. Gerard Sitzer uh, wrote a book called Resilient Faith, and he observes this, that Christian belief was so new In fact, in the New Testament, that it required Christians to have to figure out a third way to move new believers from conversion to discipleship, from outsider to insider, from observer to full-fledged member. In other words, they didn't know what discipleship was yet. They had to figure it out. How do you get a brand-new believer to be strong in their faith and to recognize the difference between secularism and and holiness and the kingdom of God? They had to invent discipleship to, to work it out with the new believers. It also goes on to say, New Testament Christians engaged the culture without excessive compromise. They remained separate from the culture without excessive isolation. Christians figured out how to be both faithful and winsome. They were in between two worlds. You can't run and hide from it, but you can't fully engage either. You've got to be in between. How do we do it in a way that's not offensive or oppressive or argumentative or, 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 or compromising? How do you live a life in between two worlds? Today, he goes on to say Christians can no longer rely on the favor of the state or the popularity of Christianity and the power of being in the dominant majority. We are between Bethel and I. We are between success and annihilation constantly in our walk. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus said, I am sending you like lambs into a pack of wolves. So be as wise as snakes and innocent as doves. So we're following Abraham on a journey. But every one of us are on a journey, too, in our spiritual life. We're all trying to work out our salvation. We're all trying to figure out how do we fit in this world, yet be true to our belief in God. That's what we're learning with this, the patriarchs. But my question for you is, how are you doing on your journey? Would you bow your head? As I close, I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. How's it going, living in between two worlds? Are you finding that you're, you've got a good foothold on each Side that you're strong, you have that altar, that place you can return back to each time that you feel that you're getting lost or pulled away from God. You've got the foundations still. Father God, I do pray that you would strengthen us from the inside out, that you would strengthen our soul, that you would give us what we need to withstand the pressures of this world, to not compromise. Somehow, Somehow to remain separate but involved. Somehow to to figure out how to be faithful and winsome and not argumentative and sneaky and arrogant. But Father, show us how to show your love just like you did. How to have our standards, how to have our morals, how to have our Christian ethics as we live in this world but not be of it. Thank you for this church and for the encouragement it is and for the many groups that we have to encourage one another and support one another. I pray, Father, that we would continue to learn from these patriarchs uh, to, to be the people you need here in Maple Ridge to change this city. I pray in Christ's name, amen.